0: Chapter 44, Summer Madness. Saturday the 7th of September had also been the day on which the Joint Intelligence Committee advised the Chiefs of Staff that an invasion was once again imminent. Hundreds of invasion barges were now stacked up the other side of the channel and numbers were increasing daily. They also had intelligence on German troop movements and had picked up the fact that von Richthofen's dive bombers had been moved near to the Padakalay. Four German spies had also been caught landing from a rowing boat on the southeast coast, and they confessed that their job had been to report troop movements of British reserve forces. Furthermore, the conditions of the tide and moon, not to say the weather, were highly favourable between the 8th and 10th of September. It all seemed to point heavily to one thing. With enemy bombers already over London, the chiefs of staff accepted the JIC's advice and at 5.20pm issued an official alert. The army was already at eight hours notice, but General Brooke's chief of staff, General Bernard Paget, now gave the immediate action to all troops in eastern and southern commands. And then at 8.07pm, Brooke issued the signal Cromwell, the code word that warned all troops to go at once to their invasion battle stations. Although only a warning, however, the Cromwell signal was issued to all Home Guard commanders, many of whom interpreted it to mean the invasion was already happening. Across countless towns and villages, church bells were rung, calling the home guard to arms. In no time, reports were flooding in of German parachutists landing and fast motorboats approaching the coast. Of course, nothing of the sort was happening. Although the British had spent most of the summer expecting German parachutists to descend at any moment, Goering had still not even pledged his precious Fallschirmjäger to the invasion operation, despite OKH's plans for them. There were plenty of boats out at sea, but none transporting German infantry to England. All local naval commanders have been put at immediate notice by night and short notice by day. The 29th Mine Sweeping Flotilla, for example, have been ordered to lie offshore at Eastbourne as a first anti-aircraft line. We made up a barrage line, says Joe Steele. About eight trawlers stretched across the harbour and as planes came over we'd open fire with our 12-pounder and twin-point fives. As Joe admits, it was not very effective. The 12-pounder was not designed as an anti-aircraft gun, and neither were the 0.5-inch machine guns, but the trawlers were cannily placed should the invasion have been mounted. Churchill had personally rung Park to inform him of the invasion warning, but had not seemed unduly concerned himself. Nor was Park, who was confident fighter command could stave off the enemy fighters, while bomber and coastal commands attacked any invasion shipping. In fact, much to his annoyance, Park had still been in his meeting with Dowding when the bombers had arrived over London, so had not been in the operations room at Uxbridge. Hurrying there, he had arrived before the raiders passed, conferred with his controllers and then dashed to Northolt where he kept his Hurricane. Rather like Feltmarshal Milch, Park made sure he flew regularly, seeing the lie of the land for himself and speaking to as many of his squadrons as possible. Flying over London, he had been appalled by the sight of so many fires, but he sensed that the attack on the capital was unlikely to have been a one-off. Rather, he suspected it marked a major switch in Luftwaffe policy, and if so, it would give him a chance to bring his airfields back to some kind of order. In short, the Luftwaffe might have thrown him a lifeline. Churchill had been at Chequers, but at noon on Sunday the 8th of September, he left for London, taking General Ismay with him, and headed straight to the worst parts of the East End. More than 300 had been killed and more than 1,300 seriously injured. But one of the first places they had been taken to was an air raid shelter that had suffered a direct hit. About 40 people had been killed. And now, the afternoon after the night before, the place was still heavy with those searching for trapped people and belongings. As the Prime Minister got out of the car, people rushed around him, crying, ''It was good of you to come, Winnie, and we thought you'd come.'' Others shouted out in defiance, ''We can take it. Give it him back.'' Churchill was profoundly moved. When he had supported plans to attack Berlin, he had been aware of the probable German reaction, but was equally firm in his belief that Britain and her people had to be prepared to accept losses in the struggle against Nazi Germany. Now, however, he sobbed quite openly, the tears streaming down his cheeks. As Ismay struggled to get him through the press of people, he heard an elderly lady say, "'You see? He really cares. He's crying.' As they continued their tour, they saw many Union Jacks flying on piles of rubble that the day before had been houses and homes. Others were little more than skeletons, fires still burned, and before Churchill left much later, it was evening, and the bombers were returning once more. Ismay tried again and again to get the Prime Minister to leave, but he was in a defiant and obstinate mood and insisted on seeing everything. As Churchill finally agreed to head back to Downing Street, a shower of incendiaries fell just in front of them, It was a long journey, the entourage struggling to get back through the narrow streets, many of which were blocked by houses and buildings having been blown across them. At around the same time that Churchill was struggling through the streets of London's East End, across the sea at the Biscay Port of Lorient, the newly refurbished U-48 was slipping from her moorings and heading out on patrolling the Atlantic. The submarine was one of the most famous of all U-boats, with a record-breaking number of ships to her name. She also had a new skipper, her third in a year, Captain Leutnant Heinrich Bleichrott, who, aged 30, was new to command and had only one combat patrol to his name. He had a lot to prove. So did all Admiral Donitz's U-boats. They had to prove that even if Sea Lion could not be launched, there was still a way of bringing Britain to her knees. Also on board was a new first radio operator, or Funkgefreiter, Rolf Hilser. Just 18 years old, Rolf had only recently been promoted having been on a course to Pillau signal school where he had learned about the latest radio and sonar equipment and how to operate it. Like Hans eckhard Bob, Rolf was from Freiburg in the Black Forest, about as far away from the sea as any point in Germany. His father, however, had been in the Navy in the last war where he had served on the battleship Friedrich der Große at the Battle of Jutland. All the same, Rolf might never have joined the Navy at all, In August 1939, he had been called up and posted to the 214th Anti-Tank Regiment in Frankfurt. One morning, whilst on parade, all those who were single and under 5 foot 8 inches were asked to step forward. Since Rolf was both, he did as he was told. Only then were they told they had just volunteered to join the U-Boat Arm. Nobody was keen, says Rolf. We knew what was coming. After training on U-67 and having completed his signals course... He was sent to Lorient towards the end of August, along with another new member of the crew. Spotting an officer down at the harbour, they asked to be directed to U-48. In fact, the officer was their new captain, Heinrich Bleichrot, who shook hands and directed them to see the UberBootsman, the ship's mate. On board, there were allotted bunks, and Rolf had a chance to look around his new boat. He was impressed. With the refit, U-48 could have been a brand new submarine. Now, with dusk turning to night, U-48 was heading back to sea, Two minesweeper escorts led them out of the harbour and out into the Bay of Biscay, but after an hour and three quarters they turned back. They flashed their lights, said Rolf, and wished us good luck and good hunting. The bombers returned to London the next day, Monday the 9th of September. Amongst those attacking the capital was Peter Stahl. He had been forced to sit around kicking his heels, waiting for his Junkers to be repaired, but although it was still not ready, he had been given the oldest sledge in the Grupper and told to fly in that. Taking off from Chievre, they climbed through cloud, and the machines scattering somewhat. His canopy was icing badly, but when they emerged into the sun, he realised he was leading the grupper and so remained in that position. They then formed up with the other bomber units over Lille until there were at least 200 bombers, and then later, as they reached the French coast, the fighters joined them too. Peter found that flying an individual plane amongst such a large formation gave him a sense of security. Wherever one looks are our aircraft, he noted, all around. A marvellous sight. As they crossed the channel, the formation began to sort itself out. Fighters zigzagged beside and above them, and then as they passed over the British coast, flak rose up to greet them. Visibility was good, and soon he spotted great pillars of smoke rising 5,000 metres into the sky, which he took to be coming from London. Soon they had reached the outer belt of London flak. The British gunners, he thought, were shooting unpleasantly well, and the formation became restless. Peter found it hard to hold his position and he had to concentrate hard just to avoid colliding with another aircraft. He felt unprepared for this. No one had warned him of the difficulties in flying in a large formation with flak bursting all around them. It was a terrifying experience. Somehow he had reached the city unscathed. The first bombs were already falling and then it was his turn to press the red release button. Bombs away and the Junkers made its usual jump of relief. Below, Peter saw the curving Thames and the city spread out like a giant map. They watched the bombs explode as they made a wide banking turn. It must be terrible down there, he scribbled. We can see many conflagrations caused by previous bombing raids. The effect of our own attack is an enormous cloud of smoke and dust that shoots up into the sky like a broad-moving strip. The impressively coordinated formation had now disintegrated and Peter was glad he was in a JU-88, with speed and acceleration enough to be able to easily change position and altitude but suddenly British fighters were amongst them. Hein, he told his gunner. Keep your eyes open. They are Tommies. Tracer crisscrossed the sky, but while the bombers lumbered on, Peter was conscious of fighters locked in combat, twisting and turning around them. Hein suddenly opened fire with his machine gun, which made Peter jump, and then moments later shouted, They have turned away! Below, some parachutes drifted downwards and ahead of him. Peter saw a Heinkel 111 diving, trailing smoke. Soon after, he overtook another, flying with one engine dead. Having escaped into the clear, Peter pulled out a sandwich which he had kept in his knee pocket and which always found help to calm him down. He'd barely taken a bite, however, when Leo, his navigator, tapped him on the shoulder and pointed to an oil slick running over his starboard engine. A glance at the dials revealed the truth. He'd already lost 80 litres of oil, leaving just 10. A bullet or simply an old engine? He wasn't sure, but he now had no choice but to shut the starboard engine down to avoid its seizing. They staggered on ten-tenths cloud cover helped conceal them, but once again icing up of the canopy was causing Peter problems. Now dependent on his instruments, he dived gently down through the cloud. As it darkened, he knew he was near the base, and they emerged only 400 metres from the ground. Immediately they spotted an airfield, Amiens, which would do, so Peter restarted the starboard engine, hoping there was just enough oil to enable him to land. To their great relief, all went well. We touched down, he wrote. The wheels rumble over the airfield until we come to a stop and I can switch off the engines. Our first trip to London is over. Later that night, the Luftwaffe hit the city and West End. The next day, the planes were back again. Portsmouth and Southampton were also hit. Once again, London was bombed at night. Air Vice Marshal Park's hunch had been right. A clear pattern was now emerging and on the 11th of September, he issued another instruction order to his controllers. The enemy, he pointed out, had stopped the practice of carrying out two or three separate attacks by up to 300 aircraft a day and instead was now concentrating three or 400 planes in two or three waves following in quick succession, the entire engagement lasting between 45 minutes and an hour. Before, he had been forced to meet the large numbers of disparate raids with whatever he could scramble, fighting over a wide area, but now he recognised that it should be possible to meet the enemy at maximum strength employing squadrons not in large wing formations but in pairs, each independent of the other but operating in tandem, and rendezvousing over a base decided upon by the group controller. Sector controllers were to inform the group controller the moment a pair of squadrons had rendezvoused. The group controller would then lead those two squadrons to a raid, leaving the remaining squadrons in a sector to the sector controller. Spitfires were to attack the high fighters, Hurricanes, the bombers and close escort. Learning from the Germans, Park also told his squadrons to dispense with the Vic and to fly in a more loose, line abreast formation of four instead. In issuing these new orders, Park was demonstrating just how adaptable he was, revealing a commander who was prepared to make decisive operational and tactical changes according to how the battle evolved. Surprisingly few shared this attribute. However much Park and Dowding May have viewed the change of German effort as a respite for their airfields. It did not feel that way to the men flying to meet these colossal German raids. On the 7th of September, 92 Squadron was posted to Biggin Hill, now one of the world's most bombed airfields. Tony Bartley had been on leave and returned to Pembry to find everyone gone, and with them his V8 car. It was too late to head to Biggin that night, so he stayed at Pembury, too excited to sleep. It never occurred to him that he might be killed. He was flown up the following morning, the 13th of September, in an anson. Circling over Biggin, he saw a bomb-scarred mess, roughly patched craters on the grass and tarmac runway, and ruined, blackened buildings. The ferry pilots landed and rolled over towards some Spitfires, which, Tony realised, belonged to 92 Squadron. Without even turning off the engines, the pilot bustled him out of the anson, which then sped off again as quickly as possible. Several of the pilots greeted him cheerfully, including his friend Brian Kinkham. We shoot Huns all day, dear boy, Brian told him, and get bestly drunk at night. The station stores had been hit, so they had begun helping themselves to whatever they wanted. Brian had taken two of everything for a rainy day and advised Tony to do the same. Just then, AKAK guns opened fire as a lone JU-88 emerged through cloud and disappeared to the south, on this occasion, ignoring Biggin. What does one do on these occasions? Tony asked. Being at an airfield coming under regular attack was a new experience. Just put on a tin hat and strike a hostile attitude, Brian suggested. His car, Tony now discovered, had been wrapped around a tree a couple of days earlier by Norman Hargraves. He'd been drunk, but had been let off with a one-pound fine. I'll fix him for this, Tony told Brian. Been fixed already, poor chap, Brian replied, on the dawn patrol yesterday. In fact, there had been quite a few changes already. Another pilot had been killed the day before, and a further one shot down. On the 9th, Alan Wright had been badly shot up but had spluttered back and two others had been shot down and wounded. Bob Stanford Tuck had been posted to Command 257 Squadron and Alan had taken over Tuck's flight. The new CO Squadron Leader Philip Sanders was also out of action, having set fire to himself accidentally with his cigarette lighter. A quick lunch in the crew room at Dispersal was interrupted by another lone raider. Everyone dived for cover apart from Brian. This gives me the most terrible indigestion, he muttered. They were stood down later, having not flown, so Tony found his new digs. The mess had been bombed out, so they were in army buildings a bit further down the road. Tony raided the stores as suggested, taking various items, including a spare parachute, and making sure he chatted up a waft packer first to make sure she did a good job. Dinner was in the old army mess, and as they ate, the German bombers roared overhead on their way to London. After dinner, they decided to go to the White Hart pub at Brasted, a couple of miles down the hill. Alan was the only one not to join them, preferring, quite sensibly, to remain sober as far as possible and get his sleep. The rest headed off in the squadron truck, everyone yelling in unison, 92 fighter squadron! at the tops of their voices in response to the sentry's challenge. Through the gate, they drove at breakneck speed down the narrow roads to Brasted. In the pub were two identical and striking twins who were quickly introduced to Tony as the McNeil sisters. They seemed to know all the pilots and in no time pints were being poured and liberally handed out. Who's paying for all of this? Tony asked. Don't know. Who cares as long as I'm not? replied Brian. The natives are very friendly. After they'd down a number of pints, the landlord called time. One of the twins suggested they head to the Red House. Everyone seemed to be keen on that idea. Tony was game, although he hadn't the faintest idea what the red house was. They piled back into the truck and, after a short drive, pulled up in front of a fine old manor house. At the door, the twins were already waiting for them. Tony was shown into the drawing room and given a very large whisky. Someone put on the radiogram and another pilot grabbed one of the twins and began to dance. Several hours and bottles of whisky later, Tony thought perhaps they should be heading back. Jeff Wellam had been sick, all of them were drunk. Tony could not help wondering how on earth they were going to make dawn readiness. He was woken by his Batman at 4.30am with a cup of tea. In the corridor, he bumped into Wimpy Wade, who had put his uniform on over his pyjamas. Outside, it was cold and still dark. Somehow, the pilots managed to converge in the barrack block, wearing an assortment of jackets, pyjamas, roll-neck sweaters and scarves. Silently, they clambered into the truck and rumbled up to dispersal. Spitfires stood silently silhouetted against the thin dawn sky. In the middle of the dispersal hut was a stove, which had already been lit by the duty ops telephone operator. Around the walls were the pilot's day cots, iron single beds. Tony put on his West, then went over to his own aircraft and chatted to his fitter, Wallace, who was already checking her over. Each pilot had a fitter and rigger to look after his plane. Complete trust in these men was essential, and usually justifiably earned. Wallace assured him his spit was running like a bird. He wandered back to dispersal, where he spent the next few hours waiting to be scrambled, trying to catch up on his sleep and hoping his hangover would wear off. He was eventually scrambled three times that day, but it was in the last sortie that the squadron intercepted the large enemy raids heading for London. Two more of their pilots were shot down and wounded, but that night, having been stood down, they had dinner and once again headed to the White Hart. Every squadron had its own culture, usually dictated by the character of the squadron leader and two flight commanders. But since there were few fighter pilots over the age of 27, it was understandable that these young men should want to relax by drinking in the evening. Some pilots never drank a drop. Others, like Alan Wright, were sufficiently of their own mind not to be swayed by any kind of peer pressure and would only join in when they felt like it. It was true that 92 Squadron were particularly fond of playing hard in the evening, but they were not the only ones by any means. B. Beaumont and the 87 Squadron pilots would be down the pub most nights, as would those in 32 Squadron. We used to booze dreadfully, says Pete Brothers. One day they were stood down because of low cloud and rain, so they went to the mess and got pissed. By early afternoon, however, the sun had come out, and they were suddenly called to readiness and then scrambled. I shall never forget taking off and thinking, that button, turn it that way, switch on gun sights. We were all absolutely tanked. Mind you, when you saw black crosses, you were instantly sober. There was always Benzedrine, which some medical officers would hand out more liberally than others. In 92 Squadron, Bob Holland was notorious for taking the drug in order to get himself going in the morning, although most pilots with sore heads found that a few deep inhalations of oxygen were enough to clear the head. For Pete Brothers, as for others, the boozing was done because it was fun and they were young and because they could. But it also helped them not to dwell on things too much. The camaraderie of wartime is something that cannot be understood by someone who's not experienced it. A squadron, or staffle, was a very close, tight-knit bunch of young men. Most preferred to put the losses out of their mind, but it was not always that easy, especially when it was particularly close friends or even family. On the 12th of September, Arthur Hughes learned that his brother, Dave, a Hurricane pilot with 238 Squadron, was missing. Two days earlier, Arthur had been given an overseas posting to help a free French squadron in West Africa. In the knowledge that he had miraculously survived the current battle, he had been looking forward to his sister's wedding that coming weekend. He knew this meant his dear brother was dead. Poor Kathleen. Poor parents, he scribbled. His brother would have been 23 in two weeks' time. This is the end of my youth, and who knows what the future will bring. Arthur did not record whether he drowned his sorrows that night, but certainly the drink helped most people. You anesthesize yourself with a good old jar of beer, says Tony Bartley. You flew all day and fought all day, and then you played all night. Bomber crews would spend a fair amount of time drinking too. Andrew Jackson and his crew would invariably head to the pub once they knew they would not be flying that night. Arthur Hughes would often go to parties in Kings Lynn or there might be a big drinking session in the mess. One evening in August, a spontaneous mess party developed and they all got so drunk they began playing High Coccolorum, which involved one team getting in line, each man's head between the legs of the man in front and then members of the other team taking a running leap and trying to land as far along the backs as possible. Inevitably, there were injuries, one of them cracking his skull open, which required three stitches. This morning he was very perky, jotted Arthur the next day, and claimed never to have felt better. Luftwaffe pilots would drink in the evening, but by and large there was not quite the same degree of careless abandon about their drinking sessions as there was in the RAF. Siegfried Becker felt there was an important difference between the two sides that summer. They knew exactly what was at stake that summer, he says. Our motivation and conviction was of a different dimension. We wanted to be successful, but we didn't have a national goal. The Luftwaffe pilots and crews were also more disciplined, more sober in their approach. Luftwaffe Staffeln would not have been allowed to go out on benders if they knew they would be flying the following morning. It would not have even occurred to them to do so. This did not mean they were completely abstemious, however. Ulrich Steinhilper and his fellow Grupper members would be on the wine most nights, but they tended to talk shop, discussing tactics, the day's events, and other flying matters, which was not really the done thing in the RAF. In Ulrich's case, he drank wine as a tension reliever and also to help him sleep, but not with the intention of getting blind drunk. Hans Eckerhard Bob says there was some drinking in the evening, but usually they would wait until they had a night off, and then they would head into Lille, where there were lots of bars and good restaurants. They had a commandeered black citron they would use. And there were very, very nice girls in Lille, says Hans. Like all the officers, Hans was now living in a requisitioned house a short distance from the airfield in order to get away from the attacks by Blenheims and ensure he got a good night's sleep. For us pilots, he says, if there was a pretty girl in one spot, you tended to stay there. Julius Neumann says he rarely drank in the evening and neither did anyone else in 2JG27. Nor did his staffel ever head out together for an evening in a bar or a local restaurant. We never did that, he says. Instead, they would eat their meal and go to bed, or write letters, or be writing up combat reports. Anyone who claimed to have shot down an enemy plane had to write one of those reports, and describe in some detail the action and circumstances and what they saw, rather like a police witness statement. For men like Hans Bob, who already had 13 victories to his name, this could be a time-consuming business. Hayo Herrmann and his staffel were going to the village, where they were billeted, and chat up girls and have a drink, but there was not much opportunity for letting their hair down. I was a staffel captain, and I tried to improve things, says Hayo. I used my spare time to write reports. I didn't waste time. He lived in reasonable comfort, sharing a house with five or so other officers. They had another house that acted as a mess, complete with luftwaffe furniture. There was also, of course, the sea. The French beaches were not mined, and covered with barbed wire like the beaches were in England. Mordick was almost amongst the sand dunes, and Siegfried Bedker enjoyed regular evening swims at La Panne, followed by dinner out in the town. For the British pilots, the waiting around was difficult. There was a lot of tension in sitting around in dispersal, says B. Beaumont. You jumped to foot when the telephone went. B. slept as much as he could. If you'd been fighting during the day and you'd gone off down the pub with the lads at night and then a little bit more than you should have, he says, by four o'clock in the morning when you were woken, you probably had a bit of a hangover. And so as soon as you got to dispersal, you'd find a bed and lie down and go to sleep till somebody wake you up. Some people read, but B. never did. Nor did Alan Wright. He greatly enjoyed reading, but he couldn't whilst waiting to be scrambled. If you're immersed in a book, he says, and you're suddenly called out, it takes a few seconds or a minute or so to readjust, and I thought that might slow me up. Instead, he preferred to talk to his fitter and rigger, check his aircraft, and simply watch what was going on. Time between missions was different for Luftwaffe pilots, because they usually knew when they would be flying. Normally only a couple of pilots would be kept at cockpit readiness in case of intruders. Very often it was decided in the evening before the mission what every pilot had to do the next day, says Hans Bob, whether it would be a free hunt or close escort. Pilots still felt tense waiting around to fly, however, but would spend the time in much the same way their British counterparts did. Writing, reading, playing chess, eating, sleeping, etc., scribbled Siegfried Betker, passing the hours each in his own way. Hans used to play a German card game called Scat a fair amount, and like Siegfried, would swim in the sea whenever he got the chance. Relaxation was crucial to a pilot's chances of survival, and those who were able to switch off and turn their minds to other things would tend to live longer. There was a balance, however. Getting blind drunk and flying still half inebriated was obviously not a good idea, but nor was living and breathing the war every minute of the day. A cool, calm head was also essential. In times of intense pressure and stress, the body tenses, the muscles shorten and the heart rate quickens. In these circumstances, it is harder for the brain to make calm, informed decisions, so panic takes over and the brain works irrationally. By keeping calm and measured, the effects of pressure lessen, the heart rate remains at a steadier pace, the body feels more relaxed, and so those split-second decisions that can mean the difference between life and death are more likely to be the right ones. Hayo Herrmann, for example, was superb under pressure, able to control his fears and think clearly at all times. My crew always said that I was extraordinarily calm in the plane, he says, even when there were fighters and flak around us. But you had to be like this. Certainly, all the best pilots shared this attribute. Hans Egerhard Bob says he always felt in complete control in his aircraft, and that adrenaline prevented him from feeling scared. Pete Brothers reckoned experienced pilots developed a kind of sixth sense, You'd get the feeling that someone was looking at you, he says, which would make him look round in time to take evasive action. The difficulty for the sprogs, as new pilots were known in the RAF, was that flying these machines was still a comparatively new experience. When Pete Brothers or Hans Eckhardt-Bob got into their planes, they knew precisely what their machines were capable of and in the heat of battle could manoeuvre their aircraft without having to think about what they were doing. For men new to action, it was a completely bewildering, frightening and alien experience, And apart from the especially cool-headed, most tended to panic, then not to be able to make informed decisions, so they were invariably shot down. Familiarity with one's aircraft combined with experience also helped the better pilots to get more from their machines. Pete Brothers was fortunate enough to be taught by a First World War ace who told him that when he was about to black out, he should put his head on his shoulder, which stopped there being such a direct flow of blood from the head. It slows the blacking out process down, says Pete. Enables you to pull another couple of G before you pass out. I used to tell the chaps in the squadron. He also learned other tricks. Suppose you see Tracer passing on your left, he says. The instinct is to turn away from it. The chap who is shooting will have noticed that he's flying to the left of you and he will be correcting his aim. Trick him, go through where he is firing and you'll collect a few holes but you'll throw him off his aim. Pete always used to wind a bit of rudder trim so that his hurricane was always yawing or crabbing slightly. He felt it helped to put any would-be attacker slightly off his aim. Pete believes that experience was the key to survival and points out that in 32 Squadron, not a single pre-war pilot lost his life that summer. People were shot down, he says, but no one was killed. It was always the new boys that got the chop. In many ways, he was right, but battle fatigue was also a merciless killer. Fighting was tiring, says B. Beaumont. It was all cumulative. The weeks went by and the pressure never stopped, and then there was the loss of your colleagues. It was precisely this cumulative effect that was now beginning to seriously take hold of the Luftwaffe pilots especially. The new boys arriving were green and undertrained, but the experienced ones were being flown into the ground. This was because commanders like Kesselring and Sperler had no choice but to keep them flying. It was true that there was little proper understanding of combat fatigue, And this did not help the pilot's cause, but the main reason for pushing the pilot so hard was that the Luftwaffe had been given the task of destroying the RAF, a job that required a force far larger than was currently available. The increasingly desperate shortage of new and repaired aircraft made the situation progressively worse because no Sprog would be given an aircraft above a more experienced pilot. So, the older hands had to fly on and on and on, every day without let-up. Only bad weather would spare them from combat sorties, and even then, if the weathermen thought the skies might be clear over England, they might still be sent over. These missions would be called a Sats, a rubbish action. We used the phrase to refer to actions that were not only unreasonable, recorded the 9JG 52 diarist, but also pointless because the weather was so bad. We began to feel the fatigue and the tiredness that comes with living under constant threat, noted Ulrich Steinhilper. Adrenaline would keep them going during combat. We would feel the relief of returning to base, but would then have to cope with the emotions of having lost friends and colleagues, knowing also that within minutes we'd have to do it all again. It was the relentlessness that was so difficult to deal with, the lack of time off and the lack of any real release of tension. It was true that the German pilots did not have quite the same anxiety of waiting to be scrambled, but this was small consolation. There was the exhaustion of combat flying married to an anxiety on every sortie of not having enough fuel to get home. We only had ten minutes to fight, says Julius Neumann, and then we had to go back. It was all too easy to misjudge that narrow window. Many a pilot flew back with his fuel gauge on empty, every passing second racked with tension that he might not make it. Plenty did not.